Ephesians 5. Paul has been explaining that behavior worthy of who we are in Christ requires us to be living the Spirit-filled life in our marriages, in our families, and in our work environments. And we are waist-deep into that marriage part of that discussion. Last week, we studied how God commands husbands to be unconditionally devoted to their wives in the same way Jesus is to the church. And then Paul gave us two examples of how Jesus did that, by His life and by His death on the cross. And so this morning, we're going to examine how Jesus' love for the church had the intent to accomplish certain things, and that that actually applies to husbands as well. So verse 26, we'll start, I'll read in verse 25, we'll read down to verse 29, and then we'll pick up the study in verse 26. Verse 25, Paul says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord the church." Here we see in verses 26 and 27 that Jesus planned to accomplish something in the church through His love, the love that we saw demonstrated last week. He planned to accomplish something. First, it says that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. The He here is not the husband. It is Jesus. It is singular. Husbands, plural, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, Christ singular, and that he, that's why he loved the church, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might sanctify it, he says. Jesus wants to sanctify us. The word here means to cause someone to be set apart for sacred use. Now, there is no end here in the original language. It means to it's a participle. It means it modifies sanctify. That he might sanctify, cleansing it or purifying it or causing it to become clean with the washing of water by the Word or literally with a water bath consisting of the Word of God. Jesus, He has loved us to set us apart with the purpose of an intent to set us apart for God's use, and He'll do that by continually cleansing us in His Word. Jesus, in other words, didn't just die for you and me to give us a ticket to heaven. He died to transform you and me into someone that God can use. And He does that through immersing you and me in God's Word. That applies to everybody. This is not just a husband thing. This is not just a marriage thing. This applies to every person. For example, if I don't take regular showers as a human being, I'm going to smell bad, and I'm going to start feeling nasty from a physical sense. You're going to sense that you just, ugh. In the same way, if you're not reading, meditating on, and applying God's Word to your life on a regular basis, you're going to stink spiritually. No, you're not going to grow spiritually is the point. The process of being sanctified, the process of being made more like Christ, of being cleansed, it comes through being in the Word regularly. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus wants you to grow, and He has laid down the plans to make it happen. He wants you to grow. This is not a situation where you go, if I do this, will it work? 
Me and Bev got a new mattress because you know, we're getting older and our backs need a little bit more firmness and stuff in the mattress. And we didn't know what we'd get into. You get the thing and you put it in there and let's see how it works. That's not with this thing. Like you don't ever have to wonder, okay? There's, there's never going to get a product that comes in and you're going to go, oh, this is not what we were hoping to get. It will always work because Jesus wants you to grow. Look at John 15 with me. Some people are saying, that's the worst illustration I've ever heard, Pastor Will. I don't ever write down my illustrations, so sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. John 15, Jesus explains here his desire for us to grow and giving us the tools necessary to do it. He says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away, but every branch that bears fruit, he purges it. In other words, he prunes it, he cuts it back that it might bring forth more fruit. Now, you are clean through the what? Through the word that I've spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. You say, I want to grow as a Christian. Okay, you got to stay close to Jesus. We don't operate on the battery principle. Like, you, you can't come to church on Sunday and be like, all right, preacher, fill it up. It's got to last all week. It's not a gas station where you fill up the tank and you ride it out until it's done and then get some more. We operate on the connection principle. Abide in me, remain in me, be close to me, make your home in me, and I in you, and you'll bear fruit because if you're disconnected, you can't. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Therefore, he says in verse 6, if a man does not abide in me, he's cast forth as a branch, and it's withered. If you're going to be disconnected from the Lord, you're just going to begin to wither. You know why you need to take a shower? Because your skin is dying. It's rotting. So you got to scrub off all the stinky, dirty, rotting flesh and all the creatures that are… No, I'm not going <laughs> to… In the same way, if, if we, we don't stay connected to the Lord, we're just going to wither. And then we really are not worth anything in, in the sense of what we can accomplish in life. Men gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. You can't… Have you ever looked at a grapevine? Can you build anything with a, with a grapevine? No. It's like that bendy wood. It's just… It, it's useless. The only thing you do is build a fire with it. So if you abide in me, Jesus says, my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. But here it is. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. I want to do this. I'm, I've made all the tools available to you. I'm here. I will grow you. Just stay connected to me. Abide in me. John 17, Jesus communicates this again in his great high priestly prayer where he's interceding for his disciples and he's interceding for us. He says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Same thing Paul's saying, that he might sanctify it with the washing of water by the word. As you have sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. What's the truth? His word. Amen? So Jesus, he 
He loves us, he loved us, he did all these things for us to transform us into someone that God can use. But Jesus also died for you and me to accomplish another thing for us. Verse 27 of Ephesians 5, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The word there present, it means to raise someone up or to cause someone to stand before another person. That he might raise us up to cause us to stand before himself as a glorious church, a radiant, wonderful, splendid church. And what does a radiant, wonderful, splendid church look like? It says not having any stains, not having any wrinkles or anything like it, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, these words here, they all describe a wedding scene. Every one of these words used here describe a wedding scene. The bride, she's in her best outfit. It's clean. It's ironed to perfection. She is radiant as she's presented to her groom. And yet, there is something unique to this wedding picture, to to any wedding I've been to. There's something different about this wedding picture because Jesus is both the person who walks the bride toward the groom and the groom. Like, there's no father walking the bride down. He's walking the bride down, and then he's presenting the bride to himself. What an awesome image, especially when we keep verse 26 in mind as well. In other words, Jesus died for us so he could make us more holy day by day, and then his death also makes it possible to bring us every step of that way to perfection. Like, when you hear someone talk about salvation, sometimes we forget that salvation isn't just our justification. Like, if you understand, well, salvation is all my sins are forgiven, that's just a part. There are three aspects of our salvation. Concerning our past, we are justified. We were guilty, and now God declares us to be righteous. He washes all our sins away, and He makes us righteous. But the moment that happens, now we are in our present, and He is sanctifying us. He's making us more and more like Himself every day. And that process will start the day we get saved and continue. He's still saving us all the way till the day we die or He returns. And then on that day that He returns or we go home to be with the Lord, it says that He glorifies us. We get a new body that will never grow old, never die, never sin. When we're justified, we are freed from the guilt of sin. As we're being sanctified, we're being set free from the power of sin. And someday when we're sanctified, we'll be set free from the presence of sin. All of that is our salvation. That's why someone says, well, we already are saved. Well, yes, but we're still being saved. And we will be saved someday. That's why sometimes when you see that in the Scripture, don't let somebody confuse you and go, well, you're not really saved yet. No, you are, but you're still being saved, and you'll fully be saved someday. Because all of those things are aspects of our salvation. Christ When he died for us on the cross, he died to sanctify us, to make us more holy day by day, verse 26. But his death also makes it possible to glorify us, to present us perfect, holy, and without blemish. That word there, without blemish, it means perfect, blameless, faultless. Even though we see stains and wrinkles now, Jesus' work on the cross guarantees that He will finish what He started, that He will make us perfectly holy someday. That's what Jude 24 says. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling 
and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. That verse is pregnant with so much theology. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling, but you know, with great joy is going to present you. Just what Paul says here. He's going to present us to himself. Now, I realize in our fallen world that maybe having your dad walk you down the aisle, ladies, might not be a happy moment. It might be an uncomfortable moment or a scary moment because of the wickedness that's in the world. But I can promise you this. You don't have to be afraid of what it's going to be like to see Jesus someday. You know, that song was written many years ago, I Can Only Imagine, right? What will it be like? I can tell you this, you won't be frightened because the one who presents you to Jesus in the brightness of His glory, in the fullness of His glory, like where John fell on his face, is also the same Jesus who has the nail scars in His wrists and His feet and the wound in His side. He'll be walking you down the aisle and he'll bring you up and he'll present you to himself in all of his glory. Perfect, holy and blameless. Jesus' love for us was so great that as he was dying for us, he kept in mind this great joy. This great joy was before him of how he would make us into something far greater through his death. Something radiant, something glorious. Now, that has application to husbands. But before we make this application to husbands, I need to point out that there is a false teaching out there based on this verse. And I'm, I'm hearing it way more these days. And it is this teaching that Jesus can't come back to present us on our wedding day until the church has no spots, no wrinkles, and no blemishes. Until all those who are not holy are purged from our ranks. That is heresy. That is false teaching. We do not rid ourselves of, of the spots and the wrinkles. We do not present ourselves to Jesus as those who are already without spot or wrinkle. He perfects us as we look to Him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it makes it very clear what our responsibility is and what His promise is. It's just looking unto Jesus. We need to lay every sin and weight that so easily ensnares us, but we look and run with endurance the race set before us, but we do it by looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. The word finisher means perfecter of our faith. We do not perfect ourselves, and that process of perfection will not be complete until Jesus comes to get us, not before He comes to get us. So we say, no, I've arrived. I, I've arrived. Like I purged myself of every spot or wrinkle and I'm ready and now I just need everybody else to get on board and to get rid of everybody else who won't and then Jesus can come back. Even if that was possible, even if you were at that place now, there's a problem because you've got a past that is not represented by that same definition. That's why the Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Even if you got it all right right now, and could somehow keep it all perfect until you die? I don't even know how you'd figure it out. So everybody else did? The theology breaks down because you've got a past that causes this flesh to be tainted. There is no way any human being could step in there and say, all right, Jesus, come get us. We're ready. We have 
We'll talk about this a little bit tonight, but we have lost the sense of sin in the church. Even when things are good, there should be a great humility about us. Even when I'm walking with the Lord, there should be a great desperate need, knowing that, as we read earlier, apart from Him, I can do no thing. Now, this teaching is often used to say, well, the rapture can't happen yet. Listen, guys, there is nothing that needs to happen for Jesus to come back. Nothing. There's no event that needs to occur. There's no achievement the church needs to make for Him to come back. Jesus is simply waiting for the Father to nod His head and say, go get your bride, son. That's all He's waiting for. He's not waiting for us on us to get our act together or to purge out unworthy members from our midst. Could you imagine Jesus up there in heaven and the Father's looking at Him and go, well, I'd like to send you, son, but they're not ready yet. In fact, the whole parable of the virgins makes no sense if everybody is perfect and ready. Why would they have need of oil for their lamps if we can do it on our own? So, having said that, and I encourage you, if you have been saying that, because I keep hearing it, I keep hearing it over and over again from just people usually outside our church, but if you've been saying that or you've been listening to someone's teaching that, stop listening to them. I don't care however good the other stuff they might be saying is, stop listening to that. Because somewhere, their understanding of what it means to be in Christ is seriously flawed and it will affect you negatively. Bad theology always leads to bad behavior, always. Now, coming back to marriage, how does what Jesus did for the church apply to how husbands love their wives? Paul says, so ought men to love their wives, and here it is, as their own bodies. It's not that he says, like, so ought, like, in this way men love their wives. No, ought here means to be obligated or morally bound to do something. He says, so, in light of this, men are morally obligated to do something, to love their wives, and then he explains, as their own bodies. In other words, when we read verses 26 and 27, it it explains a way that we are connected to Jesus, that through his love for us and how he sees us as connected to him, he acts in certain ways towards us. In the same way, husbands need to see themselves as connected to them as surely as their own bodies. Husbands, if you are married, you need to see your wife as connected to you in the same way that Jesus sees himself connected to his bride. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Jesus makes it very clear. He says, listen, it is written... For a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And then he explains. He says, so the two are no longer two. He says in Matthew 19, 6, wherefore, because he shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, that word cleave means to be permanently glued together, and because as a result of that, they're no longer two, but they're one flesh, Jesus says this, wherefore, they are no more two. They are no longer the two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder, pull apart again. I don't know how to explain it other than just to say God does it. When you say I do, God does something supernatural. It's not like all of a sudden, and if you've got married, you probably know this is true, that you said I do, and all of a sudden magical fairy dust came down on you, and you all of a sudden felt different. 
No, that didn't happen. But surely enough, whether you felt anything or not, something happened. God did something supernatural, and He made you who are the two now one flesh. Not one spirit. You still have your own individual relationship with God. Not one soul. You still have your own unique personalities, will, intellect, emotions. I do not think like my wife most of the time. But we are one flesh. Two individuals in a spirit and soul concept, but as far as the way God sees us moving forward, it's always one. You have to see that, men. You and I, when we look at our own bodies, okay, we can be self-destructive with our bodies through either self-gratification, overindulgence, or through self-harm. Either way, we can be destructive to our own bodies. But God did, did not design us to live for self. You and I were designed to surrender our bodies to the Lord, to rest in His love and to not trust in ourselves. So in the same way that either we can embrace that and we can be healthy in regards to our own well-being, or we can be unhealthy and self-destructive. In the same way, you can be self-destructive with your marriage by being self-oriented instead of surrendering your rights for the betterment of your wife. You can be self-destructive. That's the whole point of verses 26 and 28. Jesus laid down His rights to make us something radiant. In other words, something that to Him was worth the sacrifice. Husbands, your wife's benefit is worth your sacrifice. And until you see that, you will struggle as a husband. If you look at the sacrifices required, your obligation to grow a marriage, if you look at those sacrifices from the perspective of, well, I don't see the benefit for me in this, then you are being short-sighted. You are being short-sighted. You're shooting yourself in the foot. Let me ask you a question, guys. Next to seeing the Lord someday, or knowing Him better, is there some goal or some desire of yours or some pursuit in life that appeals to you more than the hope of seeing the radiance of what your wife becomes as a person after 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of your loving her like Jesus loves the church? Is there some pursuit some goal or some desire of yours that appeals to you more than that, the hope of seeing the radiance of what your wife will become as a person after years of loving her like Jesus loves the church. Because any view of marriage that you might have that falls short of that perspective isn't worthy of someone who claims to be a Christian husband. It's not worthy. Now, if that's been the case for you, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying drop the unworthy stuff. You're in Christ. So let's live worthy. That's the whole point of what Paul's been saying from chapter 4 and beyond. Here's who you are in Christ. This is what Jesus has done for you. Now live accordingly. Live a worthy life, worthy of these awesome riches you have in Christ. Well, if you have some other goal or pursuit or something that appeals to you more than the hope of seeing the radiance of what your wife becomes over the years as you love her, like Jesus loves the church, then that's not a worthy concept of marriage. You need to change your view of marriage. Because, guys, we have all these amazing riches in Christ. We're going to heaven, and Jesus is going to present us faultless before His throne with a smile on His face. What Paul is describing to us here is a worthy way to be a husband. 
So embrace it. Don't fight it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't reject it. Embrace it. Now you might be saying, I don't think I can do that, Pastor Will. Like that sounds so hard, it seems impossible. Well, you're right. You won't do it perfectly. You will fail. But that goes right back to our beginning of our study last week. Remember, you're going to be growing in this role your entire life. So when you fail, instead of ditching the worthy view of marriage, get back up again and recommit yourself to this worthy goal. I choose to love my wife like Jesus loved the church. I choose to see her as connected to me in the same way my own body is connected to me and that she is worth all the laying down of my rights. Now, that's your obligation before God. But if we're going to really love our wives like Jesus loved the church, we need to see it more than just a duty. We need to embrace it properly. And that's what the end of verse 28 says. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord the church. It's not just enough to see it as your duty, men. You have to be dedicated to it. You have to realize that a husband who genuinely cares for his wife loses nothing. That the sacrifice you make for her, you lose nothing. Let me explain. Paul says, he that loves his wife loves himself. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That does not mean that you need to love yourself first or you can't effectively love your wife. That is also a common teaching I hear today, this idea that, you know, well, you have to love yourself first before you can love anyone else. Love your neighbor as yourself. No, the point Jesus makes there is you already love yourself plenty. (laughs) You hear this word out there these days is very popular, self-care. Now, I understand that, like, some of that ideology is okay in the sense, like, you want to not be grumpy the next day? Make sure you get enough sleep. Don't stay up and binge Netflix. Go to bed, right? I get that. I understand that, and that's fine. You do need proper sleep. You need to eat healthy. That's going to affect you in all sorts of other ways. However, I usually hear the term self-care in the sense of like, well, I I need to recharge. So you go away and abandon your family for three days. I'm doing self-care. No, you're being selfish. (laughs) The Bible has one solution for self, and it's not caring for it. You already do that plenty it's denying self. If any man wants to be my disciple, you want to go the same direction I'm going, then you leave self behind. You deny self, take up your cross, follow me. That's the only solution for self, not care. If I seek to find my recharging, my happiness, or fulfillment through prioritizing self, I only end up more selfish. Paul, explaining his mindset as a leader in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 14, and 15, has always challenged me. He says to the Corinthians, he says, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, if you're taking notes. Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. 
Like, who signs up for that job? I'd like the position where I'm completely spent and there's nothing left for me. I'd like the position where the more I love others, the less I'll be loved by them. But that was the mindset that Paul had as a leader in the church because he learned that mindset from Jesus. There's nothing left for Jesus on the cross, nothing left for himself. And it, it didn't bother him at all for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame. He was thinking of us. I have conversed with many Christians who refuse to embrace such a role towards others, but that's the path of a disciple. Whosoever seeks to save his life, what? You end up losing it. Whosoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall what? Find it. So opposite of our natural inclinations. You know this if you have older kids. Like you've got something, like a, you got something buzzing in your heart you want to talk to them about, concern you have, or something you want to address with them, and you go to them while they're playing Mario Kart and they're just not interested, right? And you think, but this is important. I have found with my kids, not always, but frequently, it's not when I'm ready and it's not in my convenient time. Very often the most meaningful conversations are when it's inconvenient. You know, you got one of those days where you're just kind of, you're married, you're texting back and forth with your bride, kind of bantering back and forth and the romance is building. And, Later in the end of the day, the kids kind of, you know, go to bed and house starts to get quiet. You kind of get in the bedroom, you get in your PJs, you slip under the covers and you kind of look at each other and you go, hey, babe, hey, babe. And then as you reach towards each other, all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. And you say, yes? And then a child comes in. I've got a question. You can't at that moment prioritize self and go, Get out! <laughs> because this is the moment, right? Nothing else matters at that moment. What matters at that moment is my kid wants, wants me to pour into them. This is what I signed up for when I had kids. The opportunity to love them and pour into them. I love those conversations. I love those times. You got their full attention because, well, now... They want to talk about those things. Now, I realize sometimes you just have to have a conversation with your kids, but the point Paul makes is the kids are not to lay up to the parents. It's the duty of the parents to lay up for the kids. You lay down for them your life, your rights, not opposite. That's the path of a Christian. It's the path of a disciple, and it's the path of a husband. To properly love my wife like Jesus loved the church means I can't just see my role as my duty. I can't be sitting there and going, okay, are you done talking about this? Can I go back to what I was doing? I need to approach my role with genuine devotion. We talked about it. The very first thing, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does love mean? It's unconditional devotion. Devotion, it's defined as loyalty or enthusiasm for a person, an activity, or a cause. 
Every human being is born with a tenacious devotion to self. If you want to test that truth, go into one of those rooms and take a toy away from a kid. You'll see tenacious devotion to self in that moment. I am constantly thinking about myself, whether it's something I want to do or how the things that are going on around me might impact me. It takes effort to think about others. It takes effort to not think about myself. I remember as a teenager, I don't know, I was 15, 16, 17 years old, and it dawned on me as I was laying in bed in the dark of the night that there were like billions of people on the earth that weren't even thinking about me. I was upset. David came to a similar conclusion when he looked up at the stars and he thought, I'm this small. No one else out there is thinking about me the way I do, with one exception. Heavenly Father, who loves me, love me enough to die for me to bring me into connection with Him. A husband needs to embrace that kind of devotion toward his wife. He needs to be thinking not just what I want to do or how are the things around me affecting me. He needs to think, how is this going to affect my bride? What does she want? What can we do about this? Or how do we approach this? You need to see yourself as connected. And again, not just as duty. Well, I, need, I guess I need to think about what she's, how she's going to think about this. There needs to be a sense of devotion. What can I do that will bless her in this situation? How are the things that I'm doing or others doing around her going to affect her? When I approach my role as a husband with this genuine care and devotion, I am in essence adding her to the devotion that I already had toward myself, but now without all the selfish aspects. That's what he says, means when he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. You've already been devoted to yourself, but now as you are devoted to her, now you add that. You're not subtracting. You're adding to you, but you're now you're doing it in an unselfish way. It's easy to get frustrated as a husband and start thinking, what's in it for me? If I'm going to sacrifice, I want to know that there's going to be a return on my investment, but Paul's point is, if you're thinking that way, you're missing the point. God supernaturally made you one flesh. You're not distinct in his, the way he's approaching things now. Her position as your wife means she's a part of you, and any benefit she receives is therefore also beneficial to you. So don't get bitter about the sacrifices you make or look for some way she needs to balance out the scales. Because like Jesus, you're on both sides of the scale. He's the one who presents us, and he's the one who receives us. It's the same for you. You're connected in the same way. Therefore, if you look to take from her, you're in essence also subtracting from yourself, which is Paul's next point. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. He says our natural inclination is we go out and we want to take care of ourselves. When I look at my wife and I I try to take something from her, I'm in essence subtracting from myself, which is crazy. The word for here is in light of what we've already learned, in light of the fact that you and your wife are one flesh, in light of the fact that your acts out of devotion to her benefit both of you, Paul says, consider something. No person at any time has ever hated their own flesh, 
The word hated here, it means to strongly dislike, but it implies the idea that you're going to avoid it or be hostile toward it. I can't avoid this thing. And while many might dislike their physical body, and some might even inflict harm or even take their life, those actions are taken in the hopes of providing relief from pain or to bring an end to pain. No one ever looked at themselves and I hate you, I want to inflict pain upon you. No. If you find a person who's cutting or whatever or doing things like that, it's because they're trying to relieve emotional pain. It's not the right way. I'm just saying no one's doing that because they just want to inflict harm upon themselves. Whether it's guilt or remorse or all the things that, that we battle sometimes emotionally, someone does that somehow to alleviate the emotional pain they're going through or to end it. Counselors usually describe these actions as inverted selfishness or inverted pride. One basic requirement for something to be considered alive is the ability to self-preserve, to adapt as necessary to survive. That is ingrained in all of us. To harm myself in some way, I have to go against the grain of that nature. And so Paul says, if you're going to go against the nature of what God has done to you in your marriage, he goes, you're, you're hurting yourself. And no one does that. Instead, he says, it's in our nature to do two things, and most of us are very dedicated to them, to nourish and cherish our body, even as the Lord does the church. To nourish, it means to provide the sustenance required to bring a child to maturity. It's a parenting word. To nourish my children means I'm, I provide the, the sustenance that's necessary for them to grow up and become an adult. We do that with our bodies. We nourish it, and we also cherish it. The word, it means to keep warm. We keep our bodies warm. Now, it's more than just heat. Paul uses this word in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 to describe the gentle comfort a nursemaid provides for an infant. Every person's nature is to provide the sustenance their body needs to keep going forward. Every person's nature, no matter how tough they are, is to tenderly care for their body when it's in a vulnerable place. And I guarantee you, no one approaches that out of a sense of duty. I don't approach my lunchtime with a sense of duty. Doing something else, and the body's like, need to eat. I'm like, fine. I'm morally obligated to keep you going. No. I start thinking, oh, I'm going to go heat up my lunch. I can't wait to devour that, whatever it is. Or where do I want to go today if I forgot to bring a lunch or something like that? I'm devoted to it. I'm invested in and devoted to keeping myself as pain-free as possible. I want to keep myself warm. Well, that's how Jesus is devoted to every one of you if you're a believer. He is invested in and devoted to providing everything you need to mature as a Christian. He's invested in and devoted to providing tender care because he knows you even better than you know yourself. Now, husbands, you surely cannot know your wife like Jesus does. You can't even know your wife like you know your own body. But you can be committed to learning to do better. And while there may be many things you need to continue learning about, 
there are some things that you already know. There are some things that are easy to know. Your wife needs food and clothing, other things to keep going in life. She needs spiritual nourishment too. If you are a husband, listen, you and your wife are free to set up your financial goals or your employment goals however you like. But when push comes to shove, it is your responsibility to provide for her, not her for you. It is not her responsibility to provide for the family. It's your responsibility. And you must do whatever is biblically necessary to make that happen. And guess what, guys? That might mean staying at a job you hate or leaving a job you love. You're not single anymore. In the past, you could have decided and go, I'm done. And you could have if you're the only one you're taking care of, but you're not if you're married. So you don't get to think like that anymore. You don't get to make those decisions based on what you want. You have to think about, well, I'm devoted to her. How is this going to affect her? Well, that would be bad. So dismiss that thought and we soldier on. We're men. It's what we do. Jesus He endured the cross, despised the shame for the joy of rescuing us. Dying on a cross was a shameful way to die. Criminals died on crosses. But he didn't look at it and go, I got to do that. He says, for the joy that was set before me endured it. And he despised it. He looked down on the shame. There was a joy in his heart of what he was accomplishing for us. In the same way, you must lay down your wants for the joy of providing for your bride. Now, providing spiritual nourishment, again, there's no right or wrong way to do that. You've got to have devotions with your wife, or you've got to read a book together with your wife. All those are great ideas. You can do that. You don't have to do that. But you do need to take responsibility to make sure that spiritual nourishment is taking place. I'm not going to tell you how it's supposed to be done, because me and Bev, when we got newly married, we tried all sorts of things, and none of them seemed to work for us. But I took responsibility for making sure that we were at church. I took responsibility for making sure spiritual conversations happened. And eventually I took responsibility for making sure we prayed together. That's your responsibility, not hers. She should not be having to drag you to church. You say, hey, we're going to church tomorrow. Hey, what'd you read in your Bible today? What's the Lord been teaching you lately? That's your responsibility. doesn't mean she can't ask. I'm just saying, if it's not happening, it's on you, not her. If she comes to you and says, hey, can we pray about this? That's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're not praying, that's on you. I don't know why. Oh, wow. You guys got the extra long sermon. No, you stop it now. I'm already past Keep going. I hope we end out on the other side. I know many men, husbands, who they do a good job having devotions with their wife, reading the Word together, or having spiritual conversations, but prayer seems to be the one area of of negligence, even for men who are in the Word with their wives. I struggled with that for years. I don't know what it is about us. We, We feel inadequate. We don't, we're embarrassed. We, 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 we struggle to find the right time, and so it never happens. And Bev would ask me for years, 
And I just kept failing over and over again. I'd love for you to pray with me every day. and just wouldn't do it. Had all my excuses, just wouldn't do it. I remember one day we were in bed at night and she rolled over on her side and she said, could you pray with me tonight? I won't, pester, I won't ask you again, I think is what she said. Tore me up. What's wrong with you, Will? Well, you know, the one time I asked, you know, she was like, now? You pick now? Sometimes, you know, we act like two-year-olds. Seriously, man, sometimes we do. Like, we're intimidated so easily. Yeah, now. We're going to pray now. I know it's not the best time, but it's either now or never, and I want to do now rather than never. She'll be fine. And if she doesn't like you for it, you'll be fine too. And you'll get better at it. It's better than never. Now, being a spiritual leader means you might not get to do the things you normally do on a Sunday or like a Tuesday when we have men's and ladies study. It might mean you don't get to relax and put on a TV show on Friday after a long week at work, but instead you ask another Christian couple to come over because you know your wife needs fellowship. It might mean losing sleep to have a conversation with your wife or staying up late to get work finished because you need to have a conversation with her before she goes to sleep. You need to be a spiritual leader. Your wife's known needs, of course, they go beyond the physical and spiritual necessities of life. It also says not just nourish, but cherish. Your wife also needs tender care. You don't get to go to work, pay the bills, take care of the yard, go to church on Sunday, and then ignore her with the remainder of your time. She has emotional needs too. Now, I realize that every woman is different and what she wants from you emotionally may be vastly different from what another good marriage might look like where a wife wants something emotionally. But I know this, every woman needs time. I know that every woman needs your full attention when you make time for her. And so just like Jesus, you must lay down your wants for the joy of tenderly coming alongside your wife who is as much a part of you as you are a part of Jesus. You must learn to see that you are not missing out on anything when you spend time with her. And you must learn to decide that spending time with her is right where you want to be. Not where she wants you to be, but where you want to be. I guarantee you that Jesus is never looking to get out of a conversation with you so he can do whatever he wants for the rest of the day. And I guarantee you Jesus doesn't even think that way when you're being selfish or stubborn or unreasonable. I have learned that it's important for me to tell Bev I'm right where I want to be. I don't want to be anywhere else right now. I'm right where I want to be. Now, cherishing also includes verbal and physical affection. You don't have to write poetry, men, but every man can take the time to think of things to say to build his wife up. And sometimes it's just as simple as, you look beautiful today. Sometimes it's as simple as, I love you. Sometimes it's as simple as, I prayed for you today. And don't get annoyed if she likes to lean on you or she needs physical contact. May I remind you, men, that there was a day when you were hoping you could get a kiss from that pretty girl? Enjoy those moments. Engage with them. And remember that physical affection isn't just a prelude to sex. Because if you think that way, your wife will know it and she will resent it. It's not right to resent it, ladies, but you'll make it very difficult for her not to. 
Now, ladies, there's a word for you too there. It doesn't just say husbands render due benevolence to your wives. It says wives render due affection to your husbands too. So a husband that is still learning to be a good husband is not a valid excuse for you to not be physically affectionate or verbally affectionate. Since we're all still learning, that means that you will never have a valid reason to deny verbal or physical affection or to use it as a manipulation tool to get him to change. Ultimately, when wives and husbands are doing their part and embracing it, well, that's how our marriage shines, the light of the gospel in a very dark world. And that's the point that Paul launched into marriage about. Don't have any partnership with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, rather, be light, reprove them, be different. Embracing these roles is how we're going to be light and be different. But we'll look at that next week as we look at how marriage pictures Christ in the church. So anyway, let's all stand. I have no clue how this sermon got this long. You all needed it more, I guess. Husbands, are you willing to recognize that your wife is as much a part of you as you are a part of Jesus' body? Are you willing to embrace the benefits of giving your life away for her instead of just seeing it as your duty? And are you willing to spend and be spent for your wife even though there's the risk that the more you love her, the less you might be loved? Are you willing to love your wife like Jesus loves you? Maybe you've never made that kind of commitment or maybe you need to recommit to that or maybe this morning was just a reminder to keep doing that. But whatever the case might be, if God spoke to you this morning, don't leave today without dealing with it. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit who is trying to sanctify us. And if you're a single man today who wants to be married, you need to realize that this is what you're signing up for when you say, I do. I mentioned it last week, but you're not moving in with a personal prostitute or switching moms or hiring a caterer or a laundry person. You are signing up to die and to be devoted to dying, to lay down your life to benefit somebody else. And so if you've been pursuing relationships or are in a relationship and your mindset is different than that, then this morning's the perfect time to correct that. Amen? Lord, we love you, and and we recognize how you love us. And we love you because you first loved us. And so, Lord, for those of us who are husbands this morning, we take on and we embrace this great call to be devoted to our wives, Lord, even as you are devoted to us, to see ourselves as connected to our wives, even as you are connected to us. And Lord, for every man today who might be committing something to you, I pray that you would fill them with your spirit, because Lord, we can't do this in our flesh. Lord, we can with your help. Lord, bless our marriages. Help them to be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.